Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. So we are starting a series today called You Asked For It Because You Did. And so if you don't know what You Asked For It is all about, I think Ruth did a great job of explaining it, but we have been receiving emails, people have filled in forms, uh, you know, written on cards, and we have requests about specific topics. If enough people ask for the same topic or for us to speak on the same topic, then we will do one message on it. And so what I do normally is that I don't stand and, 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 and read every question out and do it one by one. What I'll try to do, attempt to do today, is to do one message and in that one message incorporate a number of questions. You're not going to know all the questions, but I promise you there are a series of questions being asked in the one message that I share. So I'm going to get to the the content of today in just a moment. Before I do that, next week I will be speaking about women in ministry. Can women preach on the platform and preach. And the question is not, do they have the skill or the talent, but are they allowed to do it? You might say that is insane, right? I promise you this, there are a lot of uh, God-fearing, Bible-believing, God-honoring people that would say that women can't do it. There are some interesting scriptures in the Bible. For example, uh, you might read one that says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. What are you going to do with that? Well, you just have to wait a week and I'll tell you what to do with it. But, but uh, I, 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 just for fun, I've just been asking people along the way. I actually asked Michaela when I said, hey, Michaela, do you think that women should be allowed to preach? She said, for sure. So that is really, um, you know, we, we, we could just listen to Michaela next week. Um, but I'm going to do maybe just a little bit more research than her and, and answer that question. And, uh, and hopefully that that is helpful as well. Um, in, the, in the week after that, so week three, uh, I'm going to do a message just about, you know, can we really believe the Bible? And, you know, aren't we just a product of our cultural settings? And you only believe in Christianity because your mom and dad were and all that kind of stuff. And, and how does that work? And so if you've got people that have questions, then um, this might, this today, you can even get someone back here tonight. But then the next couple of weeks, this might be really helpful for you. And I, and I pray and I hope that it is. As always, there are some questions that no matter what we try, we cannot fit these things into any uh, message that I do. They just, they are uh, left of center. They stand out. I'm going to read a couple out right now. And, uh, and, and God help me with some of these. Here's the first one. First one is, uh, given the current UFO phenomenon, which I am unaware of, um, what would be its impact on Christians? So I have emailed Area 51, and if they reply, I will give you the answer to that. And I don't know if there are aliens. I doubt it, but Elon Musk said, if they are, I hope they're nice, and I agree with him. So anyway, um, there was that. Um, and, and this one, this next one, this is interesting, because I've got to be honest, I've never even really thought about this before. But the next question was, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Yeah, I mean, that's a str- I've never thought about that before, but I am going to, I feel like I could confidently answer this question with no. So, and that's strange, but I, I don't think that they did have belly buttons. So anyway, that was my best attempt at that. Done. Um, now, uh, I, I'm going to got some really important things to talk about today. And uh, the topics I'm going to speak about today, they're, they're a little bit sensitive and, and, and they're serious. And so we had a, a number of people, a number of people that really emailed in and they wanted to ask questions about suicide. And we had questions about divorce. 
And so I am going to preach one message and group these topics together. And that might sound really strange to group these things together. But in like 30 minutes to an hour, just giving myself a really big window there, I will explain everything to you and you will be able to make sense of why these things are together. I'm going to start here. About six weeks ago, there was a story circulating around on social media, true story, about a pastor by the name of Jared Wilson. I know people that know or knew Jared, and uh, they said that he was such a nice guy, uh, very encouraging. He spoke a, lot, uh, spoke a lot about mental health. He was only 30 years old, uh, married, family. And, uh, and so about six weeks ago, he actually wrote this message on uh, all of his social media uh, pages and so forth. He said, loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. And then that night, he made the um, decision, the sad decision to take his own life. And there was a big ripple effect across the church and not just that church, but because so many people knew him, uh, it impacted and affected a lot of people. And so um, it, it was a, a, it's a serious thing, mental health. I think that um, mental health is increasingly a significant problem that we are needing to face and deal with in the Western world. And I would say the Western world because, you know, in, in some of the research and, and conversations and, that, I, that I've had, you know, in developing nations, the idea to take your own life when you feel like there's no hope is actually really a, a largely a foreign idea. And you think about what some of these people are going through, but in, in, in this nation at least, it's a significant problem. And, and, and here's a sad part, Jared, who made that decision as a pastor, not even Jared is alone. In fact, there is a, uh, a company that does uh, analysis and research, statistically, um, you know, looks up and, and gathers great statistics for us. And they say that one in five pastors will experience serious mental health issues. 50% of pastors uh, will face significant depression in their life. And the reason why pastors are dealing with this stuff is because they, and I hope I don't need to convince you of this, they're just normal people. They're just normal people like everyone else. They have all the same challenges. The reason I find this so impacting is because pastors especially are meant to be able to give people a message of hope and the people that are tasked with the responsibility of providing hope at different points in their life struggle to even find hope themselves. And my point is simply that it's a serious issue that a lot of people are facing and dealing with. In fact, in Australia, suicide kills over 3,000 people every single year. Men are three times more likely than women to take their own life. And suicide is the leading cause of death for people aged 15 to 44 years old. That is serious. That is significant. And I, in, in some of my research, I came across a story of a police officer who works in San Francisco. And his job was to patrol a very specific area of San Francisco. And that included the Golden Gate Bridge. And I don't know if you've ever been there or if you've seen it. It's beautiful. It looks great. Um, but it also happens to be the number one place in America that people will commit suicide. In fact, uh, people have been known to travel from around the country and, and fly into San Francisco for the sole purpose of taking their own life. So this police officer, 
For many years, uh, he would patrol this area and had to talk hundreds and hundreds of people uh, off the ledge and, and talk to them about you know, not taking their own life. He said, and in his own words, that people believe that when they jump off the bridge, that it will be this uh, beautiful um, ending to otherwise, you know, these deep and profound struggles that have been in their life. He said, it's anything but that. It's a, it's a horrible for people when they, when they hit the water. He said that uh, for a lot of people that survive it, and people do, I mean, most are going to die, but for the people that survive it, they interviewed them after they had leapt off the bridge. Nearly 100% of them said that after they jumped off the bridge, within about a second, they'd realized they'd made a significant mistake and they wished that they could have their time over again. And I think it's only by the grace of God that some of them survived it and were able to live to tell that story. I think that when it comes to the issues of, of mental health it's, it, and, and, and suicide and depression, it's serious and it's very sad. And and the statistics would tell us that both Christians and non-Christian people would do this. And here's what I want to say about this. If you're a person that is struggling with your own mental health, and maybe you're even sitting in this room today and nobody knows, but you have considered taking your own life, it is not the answer. It's not the answer. It's not a place of hope. I understand that people go through significant struggles in their life, but if you are a person who has thought about this or maybe you've contemplated it, then please make sure that you tell a pastor or a leader. I, I do believe that there is always hope in Jesus and there's hope even in good counseling and helping other people to navigate your problems. I just realized that when you're in the middle of that situation, it feels like nothing is going to work. And that's when you need to lean on the strength of other people and allow them to shape some of your expectations. It's why you need good people around you and continue to talk and, you know, don't go silent and don't isolate yourself. And I tell you this, if you are honest about some of the things that are going on in your own life and you tell a pastor or a leader here, we would make sure that you have all the support necessary to make sure and ensure to the best of our ability that you never make a decision because I just believe that suicide is not the answer. The question is, is it a sin? The question is, does it mean that if someone commits suicide, will they go to hell? The question is, would God condemn somebody for having a serious struggle with their own mental health? And I'll be the first to say that I think that church, the church, has not always handled this issue really well. In fact, if we look through history, we would discover that it's been handled very, very badly. In fact, in the 16th century, it was made a rule that if a person was to commit suicide, that they could not receive a Christian burial. And so they would have to be buried outside of a Christ Christian cemetery. In uh, the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas said that if a, if a person had determined to take their own life, that was a sin for which you could not repent. And, and, and so it became a serious issue for people that had uh, gone through it or going through it. Some people that had attempted to take their own life were faced with an, an entirely new challenge should they survive. You see, the church began to take on this perspective that if you were to make that decision, if you sinned in that way, that a person that tries or attempts to commit suicide and survives should also be excommunicated from the church community. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a person feeling like there was no hope 
and they attempt to take their own life. And by the grace of God, they do not succeed, only to be met with uh, this idea that they should also be excommunicated from the people that they should look to for hope the most without having anyone around them that could speak into their life. And so they'd be isolated and left to be by themselves. St. Augustine, he said that to cause death was a sin. I think that's true. But he also said that suicide was causing death. And so it's a sin. The question is, is that if a person was to commit suicide, what would they expect from God? How would they expect God to respond in that situation or to that person? I'm so glad that the Bible is so clear on so many of these issues. In fact, we, we don't have to wonder what God thinks about anything. The truth is, is that if you read the Scriptures, then we see God's heart coming through everything that we do. And we, we can be really clear on how God would respond to this. I don't know if you've ever had a friend in your life that has just been high-low. And I don't mean that they have been, you know, medically diagnosed with mental health issues. They don't have, they're not bipolar, nothing like that. They're just high-low. They're just grumpy. They just had a bad day. And, you know, you meet up with them and, and like pretty soon you can pick the mood and the course of the conversation and how it's going to be and, and how, how they're going to respond. And, you know, maybe you've got a boss that is uh, high-low, you know, and, and everyone goes into work just wondering, how is the boss going to be today? Is he in a good mood? Is he in a bad mood? Is she grumpy? Is she mad? Is she frustrated? Is she upset? Have you ever been in a workplace where everyone walks around on eggshells because they don't know what work is going to be like that day? Some of you are smiling, nodding right now. You know exactly what this is like. Well, I can tell you that we don't have to wonder when it comes to God. God is not like this. He's not high-low. And I, I don't know what you imagine when you picture God. Like maybe you imagine God to be high-low in the sense that He is always really high when you don't sin. Good luck keeping that up. And when you make a mistake, He's kind of a little bit irritated at your uh, you know, diminished capacity to be perfect on planet Earth, you know, and, and so he kind of, he, he, he tolerates you, but he's kind of a little bit, most of the time he's a little bit frustrated with you, a little bit mad with you. I don't know what your images are when you come to God. When we ask people, what's God like? A lot of people try to imagine what he looks like. He's wearing a toga. He wears sandals exclusively, uh, Birkenstocks, if you must know. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and he has a beard and his hair is white. And, and so we try to come up with these ideas of what God is like. But when I say, what is God like? I mean, how is he going to respond? You know, what's his character? And I said, we don't have to worry about it too much. I want to explain something that's really important to you today about God. If you miss this next point, then you're going to miss a lot about the rest of today. But God does all of His relationships through what we call covenant. And the word covenant is not a word that we would often use these days. And a lot of people may not know what the word covenant actually means. But a covenant is like a promise, only far more significant, far more important it is legally binding. Kings would enter into covenants with other kings. In a covenant agreement, there's always a superior and an inferior. The inferior in a covenant agreement can either agree or disagree with the covenant agreement, but the thing that they don't get to do is shape it or change it. And so people can enter into covenant agreements with other people. People can enter into covenants with God, and it is serious. 
Now, to emphasize the seriousness of covenant, this is how covenants were made way back, you know, thousands of years ago. They would actually take uh, animals and they would cut them in half. And I don't mean, well, right down the center, really. And they take half of that animal and they lay it on one side of the person that's going to make the covenant agreement and vows and promises. And they take the other side of that um, animal and they lay it on the other side of that person. And so there are animals split right down the center, laying on the left and right. And a person, before they enter into a covenant agreement, would walk through the pieces of that animal. And when they come to the end, they would make their vows. They would say what they promised to. They would say what they will not do. And the idea was that if you were to break your covenant agreement, you were essentially saying, what has happened to these animals, may that also happen to me. Hence the seriousness of covenant agreements. If, I, I told you before that all people relate to God through covenant. That's the way that God chooses to have relationships with people. And if you read the scriptures, you would find that Adam and Eve were in a covenant agreement with God. All the elements of a covenant are there. There are people agreeing at both being both Adam and Eve, agreeing to certain things that God has stipulated. There are promises of blessing. There are promises of curses. If you do and if you obey and if you disobey, here's what's going to happen to you. And so they are in a covenant agreement. Now, if you open your Bible and you try to find the word covenant in the first part of Genesis, you will not find it there. But if you read Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7, you would see that, that he says that Adam was in a covenant agreement with God. And so we don't always see the word covenant. What we see is the elements of promises and blessing and curses and agreements. And so Adam and Eve were in this covenant uh, with God. We see covenant in the scriptures, but it's not an old thing. We see people make covenant, enter into covenants all the time. For example, marriage is a type of covenant agreement. When people decide to get married, they walk down the aisle and then they stand before God, their friends and their family, and they agree to certain things. We will do this. We will not do this. All of the vows. Think about it. To love and cherish till death do us part. And this I declare upon my honor, being married in holy matrimony before God. You know, this is what marriage is all about. It's a covenant agreement which is why divorce is so serious in the eyes of God. See, divorce is serious not because there is some kind of relational rift. If you think about it, if you have a, an argument with your friend, it's not treated the same way. Friends have split and gone their own separate ways before and it wasn't serious. But it's very serious when a husband and wife do it. Why is that? Because of covenant. It's because they've entered into a covenant agreement that makes it exceedingly significant. And so we know today that people get divorced. In fact, if you want to know the truth, the stats inside church and outside church are exactly the same. So Christian people are getting divorced. And what do we do? Do, do we um, uh, cut them in half when they have entered, when they got into a divorce or if they've ended up in divorce? No, we don't do that. It's a little test for everybody this morning, but none of you passed, you know. 
And in fact, a lot of you, I'm afraid of you now, you know, because you look like you, maybe you're entertaining the idea. I don't know, right? But, you know, we, we don't cut people in half. We don't do it. And in fact, if you read the Bible, you would see that they didn't actually even do this in Jesus' day. And the reason why they didn't do it in Jesus' day is because it was stipulated. Let me, let me explain it to you this way. In Jewish culture in Jesus' day, a husband could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. You know, maybe her cooking wasn't up to scratch. I don't know. Like, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. You're laughing. I don't know. This, this is the way it could go. But they could divorce their wives if they felt like they had a good reason. And so one day the religious leaders decided that they were going to test Jesus on this topic. And so they asked him a question about divorce. And this is his response. This comes out of Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. It says, And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Well, gee, that's a broad term, isn't it? Any cause. You could sweep a lot of stuff into that phrase. Any cause. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That is very important because when something has become one, you have to tear it apart to break it. He says in verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one. What God has joined, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, uh, and marries another, commits adultery. This is the reason that God, you know, through Jesus, Jesus as God, this is the reason that God says people could get divorced. As if one person in that marriage has been unfaithful in that marriage. And the reason why they've been unfaithful and what it still centers around is that they have broken the covenant agreement. They said, I will stay and remain committed to you for the rest of our lives or till death do us part. And it's because of the breaking of covenant that it's serious. So if one person commits sexual immorality in some way, and let's just say this, someone cheats on their spouse, then the covenant is broken. Now, the thing about covenant is, once a covenant is broken, you can't just patch it together. There's no band-aid to put this thing back together. In fact, when a covenant is broken, it's thoroughly broken. And the way that you would fix the problem is to ratify a new covenant. You can't just patch together the old one. So once the covenant has been broken, that means that the, whatever has happened in that relationship, that the person who has been cheated on, is free to move on from that relationship. But let me asterisk this. Even though Jesus says that this is grounds for divorce, doesn't necessarily mean that divorce should be the first port of call. There would be many relationships where, where one spouse has cheated on the other where one partner has been found caught in sexually immoral acts and has, and, and has you know, broken that covenant agreement. And I would say that if, it is, if it's at all possible and the person that was responsible for that 
had agreed that what they did was wrong and that they had actually sinned and that there was repentance in their heart. And sometimes we're not 100% sure what repentance is, but the word literally means a change of direction. So they changed their life and head in a new direction and say, what I did was wrong and I am sorry. I would suggest that if it's at all possible, through grace and love and forgiveness and a lot of counseling and a lot of building back of trust, if it's possible to restore that marriage in any way, that that would be the first option that you would try to take. What I'm trying to suggest is we don't want to use anything as an excuse to get out of the marriage. You know, Paul gives us another reason for why people could get divorced. He says this, and you can read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. He says this, and the, the, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because chapter 7 is actually pretty big. Um, but I'm just going to single out this scripture, and you can go ahead and read that in your own time. But it says this in verse 15. It says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. What we call that is willful desertion. And Paul makes some room here for people where one person has willfully deserted the other person. And what is the issue here? Once again, the issue is the breaking of covenant. It's because they've walked away from everything they agreed to, everything that they promised, and they've broken from that covenant agreement and they have willfully deserted the other person. Paul says, why should the person that's been deserted have to be single and under that covenant for the rest of their life. It's already been broken. So they're not held to it because it's been broken. See, the issue here, it's all about the keeping or the breaking of covenant agreement because covenants are serious things. Here's what I would say about that issue of willful desertion. The, the, the concern that I have is that if I say this, that, that, that phrase, willful desertion, or if somebody you know, has, has broken the covenant, you could, if you really wanted to, try to sweep a lot of things under that banner, under that title. My concern would be that people would say, ah, oh, that looks like willful desertion to me. Great. I've been looking for a way out of this marriage for the last 10 years. And I determine your actions as willful desertion. I'm free. I'm clear. Thank God I'm moving on. I would say no to that. I would say that what needs to happen there is it would be a case-by-case example where you would sit down and have to look specifically at all of the events that were surrounding that. Have they really deserted their partner? Maybe they're going through a hard time, but I'm just not willing to just give specifics because I think that needs to be prayed through. I think it needs to be put through God, but I think that Paul makes some room here for people it's all about covenant that's why covenant is so an important thing to understand I want to give you an example of what covenant is just to help you really wrap your mind around this idea if you read Deuteronomy chapter 30 in verse 9 Moses begins a speech and he gives it to the children of Israel before they enter into the promised land And he says to them, there's some things that I'm going to tell you right now. And if you do these things, it will go well with you. If you don't do these things, it will go so badly for you in the season to come. 
And so this is what Moses says. He says, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous. And everyone said, amen. We love that part of the covenant agreement. We love the blessings. He says, he'll make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your father's. When you obey, now this is the next part. You got to listen into this part. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God, see it's stipulated here. You need obedience to get the blessings. He says to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book uh, of the law. When you turn to the Lord with your to the, turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He goes on to say in verse fifteen. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Now, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping uh, His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to, to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over to uh, the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, this is God's heart for you. This is Moses' heart for his people. This is what God is saying to so many people today. And if they could just get this part, their lives would get improved dramatically. He says, please, Literally, for the love of God, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Covenant comes with stipulation. It comes with commandments. It comes with certain things that you need to agree to. You break them, you end up in a bad place. See, this is the thing about God. We don't have to wonder what God will do when we make mistakes because He's so clear about what will happen if we make the mistakes. And if you read the Scriptures, we don't have to wonder what kind of mood God is in. We can just see it right here. Now, God made a number of covenants in the Old Testament. And I'll tell you this, and this is exceedingly important. Every covenant he ever made with people, even though he was the superior in that covenant agreement, it was always designed to bless them and separate them from sin. And the reason why he did that is because God loves people. That's why he put those things in place. The problem was that people kept messing it up, they kept sinning. And this sin would, in many ways, mean that it resulted in the breaking of covenant. In fact, if you, if you just read the Old Testament, you would see again and again and again, they just kept turning away from God. They worshipped false gods. It's literally amazing how so many generations can enjoy the blessings of God in one generation and immediately turn their back on Him in the next generation and get all of the stuff that God said would happen. He was clear from the beginning. But it's amazing how so many people's heart would just turn away. And the reason why their hearts would turn away is because they were what the Bible calls slaves of sin. In fact, if you read 2 Peter 2 verse 19, it says, that which overcomes a person, it is to that thing that they are enslaved by. 
If you've got something in your life, let's say it's an addiction. Let's say it's something you want to stop, but you can't help but continue to do it. You are overcome by that thing. And the scriptures say that you are enslaved to it. Now, the thing about slaves is slaves need to be freed. And obviously, if slaves could free themselves, they would have done it, right? Right? So slaves can't free themselves. They need someone else to do it. And the word that we would use for freedom in this sense is the word redeem. And Jesus, and that the original meaning of that word would be to set people free, free from sin, free from the curse of the law, free from sinful flesh. I mean, it just the word just really describes and encapsulates all of that. And if we wonder, why would God continue to make covenant after covenant after covenant? Why would He walk with people even though they make mistakes? Why did He not immediately punish a lot of people and continue to extend out His grace? Is because simply put, God loves people. So when I say the word love in English, the problem is, is that we use that word to describe a lot of things. And so I often say this at weddings, especially, right? But what do we love? I don't know what you love, but we, we love, all right, now it's just self-confession time. I love donuts. I, I, I love coffee, you know, and I love my wife. But how many of you know I better love my wife a lot more than I love my donuts, you know? And, and, and that's the point. We use this one word to just describe what love is. But there is this word in the Hebrew language that appears 248 times. And it's the, this word hasid. And hasid is this word that means covenant love. And the covenant love of God, it is consistent, it is faithful, it is enduring, it is extravagant, it is abundant, it is, it is over and above what we deserve. And you'll find that rabbis today, if they were to look at that word and they see that it's translated as love, but a lot of rabbi commentators say that we could take that word love and instead of saying that it means love, we should, it's closer to the meaning of loyalty. In other words, God is faithful. God continues to love us in spite of how unlovely we are. See, what you need to know is that when it comes to the love of God, it's a one-way kind of love. In fact, the only reason that you love Him is because He first loves you. It all starts with God. That's the kind of love that God offers. And because He loved people, He looked at all the covenants of the Old Testament and He said, none of these are working. People aren't becoming better. People are continuing to sin. If they have to survive through the works of the law, if they're going to have to survive this way, they're not going to make it. So he said, all right, I am going to establish a new covenant. Now, to make sure that you don't confuse this covenant with all the other previous covenants, they even took the liberty of putting a blank page in your Bible that separates the New Testament from the Old Testament. By the way, in case you didn't know, the word testament actually means covenant. Oh, that makes a lot of sense now. So we have all the covenants in the Old Testament. They worked one way. But God said, I'm going to create a new covenant. And He said, every time I've asked you people to represent yourselves, you have not been able to do it. You can't represent humanity well. So here's what He did. He said, I'm going to establish a new covenant. And this is the way it'll work. 
And this covenant agreement, yes, it'll be between God and man. But since you can't represent yourself in this covenant agreement, I will play the part of God, but I will send my son from heaven to earth to live as a human. And he will represent the human race. And so that's why Jesus came from heaven to earth, the pre-existent Christ, being fully God and fully man at the same time, but did not take any of his divine attributes or use them while he was necessarily on earth. He lived life as a human, ultimately to become a sacrifice on the cross. And the Bible says is that even though you have not participated in that agreement, in that covenant at all, should you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you get all the benefits of that covenant agreement that he established on on the cross, which is the forgiveness of sin, that you will receive full redemption. You'll be set free from the power of sin that would rule and reign your life. It goes on to give us so many more benefits. Let me say this, it's the gospel. That's why we call the gospel good news. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to, to, to get it for yourself. You can't add to it. You simply receive it. This is how God loves us. This is the love that He gives. It's a one-way love. That's why we call it grace. You know, if you could earn it, they probably would have called it earned, but they didn't. They called it grace. And if you can't do anything to earn the grace, my question will be, how could you do something to lose that grace? It's given to you in spite of your sin. See, for so many people, sin was the breaker. In so many of those old covenants, sin was the breaker of covenants. In this covenant, Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive people of all the sins that they commit. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to explain something important to you, that you live in a perpetual state of grace. That means that Jesus will forgive you for your past your present and your future sin. And I did not understand this. In fact, when I recommitted my life to Jesus when I was 21 years old, this is the way I thought it worked. I thought that what would happen is, is that when I asked Jesus for forgiveness of my sin, He would forgive me for all the wrong things I'd done up until that point. But if I made a mistake after that and I didn't say sorry for that, and then something terrible would happen. I was in a car accident and didn't have time to say that prayer, to ask for forgiveness. I actually believed that God would hold me accountable for everything I'd done since the last time I said, I'm sorry. And then it dawned on me that what we're really talking about here is grace. And that's not how that works. Grace means that I'm forgiven here, but I'm also forgiven here. And yes, we've got to keep short accounts with God. And yes, I want to make sure that my heart remains repentant, which again, in case you've forgotten, means a turning of your heart and you begin to walk after Jesus. And so as long as I am headed in the direction of Jesus, keeping a short account, then grace will cover me, not just for what I've done now, but for what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm just covered by His grace. His grace is more than enough for me. Romans says this in 10.13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when people are saved, we should be able to see it. Don't you think? It's like sometimes we don't know. It's like people have said the prayer and then we watch their lives and we're a little confused about whether they really meant it or not. 
And sometimes people have made, you know, not necessarily, it's not a mistake, but they've tried to make a judgment call on whether they think that person is really saved or not. Truth is, we actually have no idea, but we should see something, some evidence that would indicate to people that yes, they have a relationship with God. I'll tell you something right now. There are scriptures that I read and I'm greatly encouraged by, and then there are scriptures that just honestly totally freak me out. And since, you know, this was a scripture that years ago, I remember I read it and it kind of freaked me out. I thought that today I'd freak all you out. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says this, For if we go on deliberately sinning, oh my gosh, isn't all sin deliberate? If we go on deliberately sinning, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And it's not that Jesus didn't die on the cross for people's sins, but He's no one's fool. See, for anyone that has this idea that, hey, I'm saved by grace, so I can do whatever I want. I know how this works. And at the end of my life, just before I die, I'm going to say the prayer. And then I'm forgiven for all the stuff I've done. And I can get away with living my life however I want. Constantly crossing the line, but always knowing it's cool. Jesus died for this. There's grace for that. I could keep making mistakes. There's grace for that. Oh, this scripture says there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sin if you try to take advantage of God's grace. In fact, it says if you live this way, it goes on to say that you would outrage the spirit of grace and you would trample underfoot the Son of God being Jesus. He spilled His blood for you on the cross so that you wouldn't have to pay the penalty for your sins, but then He expects you to change your life and begin to walk after Him. Sometimes we don't know if people are really, are they on that side? Are they on that side? I don't know. Truthfully, I would give up trying to figure it out. All I know is this, is that if we can do our absolute best to disciple people and love them and get everyone headed in the same way towards Jesus, that gives me great assurance and so what we should be fully committed to is just helping people to get there I think honestly sometimes it's a waste of time trying to figure out are they are they not I don't know I saw this yeah but you've got to understand that grace covers sin it just doesn't cover all the sins when somebody tries to take advantage of it and they don't really believe it and they don't really care about that message of grace in the first place we got to get as many people as we can going after Jesus. Amen. We're going to not waste time trying to figure out who's where, but just get everyone that we can and find people that you know, wherever they are, and say, hey, you got to know this message. Well, let, let me help you start to live this life that God is calling you to. See, God doesn't expect anyone to be perfect, but you know you have forgiveness as long as you stay repentant. Amen. So this is the thing. Do any of these things, these sins that I talk about, these mistakes, could any of these mistakes, apart from the one that doesn't really believe it, which is what you need to make it active in your life anyway, could any of these things break the covenant? I want to tell you this. Sin doesn't break the new covenant. 
The new covenant breaks the power of sin. That's how it works. And so when I look at, you know, people that commit suicide, that find that they don't feel like they've got any other option, I don't think what they're saying is that they don't love God. And I don't believe what they're saying as they make that decision is that they, I don't believe they're saying I don't love people. And I don't even believe that just because they took their own life doesn't mean they weren't repentant. They were going after God. In fact, they've done everything that they can to go after God. I just think it means that they come to a place where they thought there is no hope. I'm about ready to give up. I can't go any further. There's, there's no escape for me. I think that when, pe- when a person takes their life, what they're really saying is, I just need peace and I've tried everything and I can't find it. And so I need to escape the noise that's inside of my head and, and the feeling that I have. And the only way I find that I can escape it is if I took my own life. And so would God condemn somebody for, for having a mental health issue? I would say this pretty comfortably and pretty confidently. I think that every single person that sins but loves God is covered by the grace of the new covenant. And so I would say that if a person makes that decision, they're still forgiven. I mean, how are we going to separate out death from anything else? And, and when I say this, I don't mean to tell you that it's, that it's small or insignificant. I think that, that, that causing the death of yourself or another person is really significant. I just think that Christ died for it. I want to read one more scripture to you today. This comes out of Romans chapter 8, verse 33. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It goes on to say in verse 37, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, I don't make little of death or sin. I just like to make big of the gospel. I like to make big of the magnitude of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sin. I I mean... To say that someone wouldn't be forgiven would mean that you've found a sin that's greater than Christ's sacrifice. And I don't believe for one minute that there is anything out there that Christ didn't die for and that He couldn't save people from. How far does grace go? It goes all the way. It's more than enough. And for anybody that, that, that has had this question and struggled with it, I'm telling you, there's more than enough. Maybe even today as I share this message and you think about, you consider divorce and you thought, wow, I didn't realize all of that stuff, but I understand it now. If you're in that situation today, I believe there's grace for you in that too. See, the grace of God, yeah, there are some things we need to understand about divorce, but the grace of God is more than enough to cover every mistake, every issue, every challenge, every sin, everything you've ever done, everything you're presently doing, everything you are gonna do. As long as you confess with your mouth, believe with your heart and you do everything you can to go after God. The question is not, is this sin greater than the power of Christ? The question is, are you in a covenant relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ? And if you are, every sin is forgiven. Every mistake has been forgiven. You are saved, you are set free, you are loved by the grace of God. 
I want to do this right now. I want to, I want you to close your eyes. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.